Hello, everyone. I am Nayana Blankson, and this is the prologue to my guest appearance on the Quantitude podcast. The focus of today's episode is on increase in diversity in the quantitative sciences. We are living in very interesting times currently. Diversity is a hot topic right now. Lots of people are talking about ways to increase diversity. Many conversations will stay what they are, just conversations. But other conversations will lead to actions and change. Given that issues of diversity in quantitative sciences is something that Patrick and I and others have been discussing for many years, I was happy to bring these issues to a broader audience through this podcast. We cover topics ranging from diversity at the student level to diversity at the institution level and everywhere in between. My hope is that this is a conversation that will lead to change. So, Greg, I'm starting to see a common theme as we continue with QuantaCamp. Okay. What that seems to be is you decide whenever we're going to record wherever you happen to be in the country, Uh and then I log on during that time regardless of whether that falls into my circadian rhythm or not. Yeah, yeah. So when you're on the Olympic Peninsula, you have me recording at 9 (laughs) p.m., and I'm saying inane things. Mm -hmm. Now, as best as I can tell, you're being a prepper in northern Michigan, <laughs> and we start at 8 a.m., thus I'm going to say inane things. Mm-hmm. Dude, we got to put a stop to this. If I knew a time of day when you didn't say inane things, I might try to reorient my schedule, but I have not yet found that time. I don't think you should change the topic. <laughs> I don't think that's what's important here. Okay. Now, you are up in the beautiful wilds of northern Michigan. I am here. My children are asleep. I have a dog behind me who every once in a while will snort. I took him out for a 5 a.m. walk so that I could be ready for you, Patrick. I have my 64-ounce Snapple bottle. I'm ready to go. And do you have the requisite empty one? <laughs> it's, much, it's much smaller. Boy, you really need to do the math, buddy. Yeah. To have the full one be 64 ounce and the empty <clears throat> one be 8 ounce is yeah. kind of a recipe for disaster. We might have to pause on a few occasions while we're recording here. And I like how you point out that the snorting is coming from your dog. Right. Even though I have to, in post-processing, cut out your snorting when there's not a dog in the room. So I can't you know, hear you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't hear you. Gus. The connection's bad. Connection's bad, Patrick. I can't hear you. <laughs> okay, so it's too early for me. Remind me where we've gone thus far. Get in the Wayback Machine and tell me where we've gone. Well, Patrick, we ended our season, season one, with the call to arms, which was spectacular. And there was a a flag with the Quantitude emblem on it. It was was epic. And really just calling people to come together and think about how they can elevate their respective disciplines with regard to quantitative methods. That's exactly what we've been trying to seed this summer with QuantaCamp. And so far, we've had five episodes of QuantaCamp. I can't even believe that we've had that many so far. We had developing a research idea is what we started off with. We went into choosing a journal and doing quantitative research using existing data. I can do this. I can do this from memory. The fourth one, uh, writing a pedagogical quantitative paper. How's that? Oh my gosh. My mental workbench shrinks as I get older. So I can do this because the last one was only last week. It's still in my like rehearsal buffer or whatever that is. It was building a quantitative culture within your home department where we had our wonderful guest, Becca Brock. How'd I do? I thought the last episode was on cow tipping, but (laughs) I guess we could also say that it was about 
building a quantitative culture. To be fair, the Twitter traffic that followed and the personal communications that followed were largely about cow tipping. We, <laughs> we work hard to put something out there and people latch on to, <laughs> to cow tipping. Bless their hearts. I can tell my mom in my Sunday conversation with her that I continue to impact the field in ways that she never imagined when I was failing out of middle school. <laughs> and I will omit that my impact on the field has been mm-hmm. starting a national dialogue mm-hmm. about cow tipping. Mm-hmm. Okay, so nice review. Also, remind me, we were going to do 20-minute episodes. How have we been doing on that front? Well, really, really well. We're recording about four 20-minute episodes each week. <laughs> And we're, we're cutting it back. So it's it's good. We're overachieving. Yeah. Okay. So it's like four quarters of a football game mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Is the 20 minutes was just per quarter. Yeah, exactly. I can live with that. Yeah. The, the math works out. And so I'm, I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I felt like subcontracting out the talent for the episode worked so well last oh, week. Oh, it did. I thought we should repeat that. This week, as you were talking from the Wayback Machine and talking about what we've achieved in Quanticamp thus far, mm-hmm. one of our goals and motivations in talking about how would these unfold over the summer, one of the episodes that we had on a yellow sticky is how do we start a conversation about enhancing diversity in the quantitative sciences. Yes. This was done back in May that we were talking about, and it predated the seismic shifts that we have witnessed over the last several weeks about a long-neglected conversation about race and inequity in American society, and that applies to academia. And I think this is an ideal opportunity to try to bring in some talent and help us talk about these incredibly important issues. How do we enhance diversity of our field? Why is diversity important to our field? Mm -hmm. And how can we as a field meet the needs in terms of training and research of an increasingly diverse student body? So I am very excited to introduce our guest for today. She is Dr. A. Nyena Blankson who is a tenured full professor in Department of Psychology at Spelman College. She got her PhD in quant psych from the University of Southern California, and she worked with John Horn, a true titan in the field in psychometrics and measurement. Mm -hmm. She has, like many of us, dual research interests that span both quantitative and developmental. And so from a developmental perspective, she studies things like the organization and development of cognitive abilities in personality, parenting, schooling, early academic achievement, really important work. And then her quantitative interests are similar to things you and I find interesting, psychometrics, Mm -hmm. multivariate statistics, moderated mediation design, things like that. She has won awards for teaching. She has won awards for excellence in scholarship and research. And one of the things that I find most impressive in this is her commitment to undergraduate training Mm -hmm. and pulling in the next generation of scientists into our field. And indeed, she is the principal investigator on an NSF award called INSPIRE, which is Increasing Statistical Preparation in Research Education for Underrepresented Undergrads. So I'm very, very excited to welcome Nyana. Good morning, Nyana. How are you? 
Good morning. I'm doing well and excited to join you both this morning. Thank you. Even though it is unnaturally early, but you're an early morning person yourself, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm yet again odd man out. Yeah, she's got little kids. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> doesn't count. We can record at 3 a.m. Everybody's a morning person <laughs> yeah. when you have a one-year-old. Uh-huh. <laughs> but thank you so much for carving out time to help us talk about these incredibly important issues. Yes, of course. And I'm a big fan of the show, if I should say so. <laughs> oh, well, that's <laughs> there, sweet. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> So we at least have two. So thank you so much. (laughs) Have you tried to tip a cow while consuming vast quantities of Coors Light then? No, but here's a fun fact. When I studied abroad in England uh, years ago, I walked through a cow pasture to get to the university. (laughs) (laughs) So you had an opportunity. That didn't tip any. Uh Okay, well, next time you're in a cow pasture. This is not the image I I have. Um, Yeah, you know. I remember walking through <laughs> the cow pasture, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you had your opportunity, mm-hmm. but maybe we could just start of, just in your own words, tell us a little bit about your own trajectory and how you got to where mm-hmm. you are and what you enjoy doing in your day. The origin story, as we call yeah. it. How'd you get here? <laughs> I know, right? Who actually picks going into quantitative psychology? No one. But no one. Not I did. Anyone. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> And I I tried to find more folks like me, but we need more. We need more Mm -hmm. of us. And the way that I got into this was that I majored in psychology in undergrad and I minored in math. And I planned to go to graduate school and get my PhD. I had developmental research questions, but as I was exploring different areas of psychology, I actually stumbled upon quant psych. I saw um, the University of Southern California's website, their quant psych page said, do you like psychology? Do you like math? Quantitative psychology might be for you. It's like, well, I majored in psychology, minor math. I like psychology. I like math. Mm -hmm. So quantitative psychology might be for me. (laughs) What is this thing called quantitative Mm -hmm. psychology? And so that's how I began to explore it and ultimately decided to apply to quant psych programs. Long story short, I did end up going to USC. And worked with John Horn. Then I did a postdoc in developmental, in human development, because I still had those interests. That leads me to where I am today, where I do developmental research on academic achievement and also try to stay really quantitatively smart so I can analyze my own uh, data, but then train others too to be quantitatively literate. Diana, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about Spellman and about the work that you're doing there, and maybe a bit about the quantitative training that the students receive as well. So Spellman is a small, historically black liberal arts college for women in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been at Spellman since 2009. I was promoted to associate professor in 2015 and to full professor in 2019. And I wear several hats at Spelman, but the most relevant to today's conversation is the work that I do in training students in quant sciences. One way that I do that is through the courses that I teach, such as psychometrics, statistics one, as well as statistics two. In our psychology department, our major, we require students to complete a three semester sequence in statistics and measurement. So students are required to take statistics one, followed by research methods. And for the third course, they have the option of taking statistics two, which covers multivariate analyses, 
or psychometrics, which covers test development, including how to test if measures that we're developing are reliable and valid. Some students, especially those who plan to pursue graduate degrees, will tend to take both of the advanced measurement classes. So some of our students take the psychometrics as well as statistics too. And when they get to graduate school, they're really well prepared and feel confident in that first year statistics course that can sometimes be a gatekeeper in students progressing through graduate programs. And so I think our department does a really good job in preparing students who go on to graduate programs to stay quantitatively literate, to stay in their programs and to be successful. So in addition to some of the teaching that I do to keep students in the quantitative sciences, another way that is that I train students in quantitative sciences when they work with me on independent research projects or through thesis projects. And students who work with me in my lab also get smart quantitatively because I'm able to work one-on-one with them. And when students are working on those independent projects, they're free to come up with questions that sometimes go beyond the topics that are covered in a basic class because I can work with them on those questions. So I've worked with some students, sophomores, juniors, on growth curve analyses or imputation, because those are things that came up when we were working one-on-one. And then also, I'm the director of the NSF-funded Inspire U2 program, which stands for Increase in Statistical Preparation and Research Education for Underrepresented Undergraduates. And the goal of that program is to provide statistical training to underrepresented female first-year students across a broad range of disciplines. And so the goal of that program is to increase diversity in statistical field. You're at one of the most storied and premier HBCUs in the country. How do you talk to your students about what it's like when you move from that undergraduate setting into the larger state university systems? Greg and I are in the South or in the North-South, but there are many that are at the University of Iowa or whatever that might be, where that's a radical change in the experience for the student that's in your class that would then move into the student who is in my class. Do you talk about those kind of things to help prepare students for that transition? We do. And it's a similar conversation that Black parents have with their children. We talk to them about preparing for what they might encounter when they're not in the comfort of their own homes. And so at Spelman, these young women, they're in the comfort of their own homes, but when they go out, they'll encounter certain things. And we do discuss certain things like microaggressions, the small examples of racism that they might see that they might think is not racism, but it really is. And so we talk to them and prepare them. When students come to Spelman, they learn more about themselves. They develop a sense of confidence. We equip them with these skills and tools so that when they go out there in the world and they encounter people telling them, no, you can't do this or no, you can't do that. Well, they've been at Spelman and they have learned, yes, they can do these things. And other people are not going to tell them that they can't do such things. And so when they go out there, they're able to overcome the obstacles that are still out there that they're facing. I love that parallel to parenting and the safety of the home. I really like that analogy. And that's one great thing about 
Spelman and HBCUs is that the students have that level of comfort when they are working with their faculty members, their professors, they can come and chat with us about different issues that they're facing. So we educate the whole person. And that's very important. It's not all about books and and it's not all about just the numbers. It's about you, the individual, and how are you approaching these topics that we're talking about. And when we educate that whole person, then the individual is able to be successful. Yet one thing to know is that there's some individuals who question the importance of HBCUs. Why do we still have them? But some are not aware that a place like Spelman, for example, is one of the top producers of Black women who go on to get PhDs in STEM. There are only about 2,000 students at Spelman. So think about that. They're producing folks who go on to get PhDs in STEM at a larger rate than other institutions. It speaks to the relevance and importance of these places and for other institutions to connect with HBCUs to help nurture and foster the development of this talent that we have. When I think about the conversations that are happening right now in real time, is there's very much a pressing need to do something now. And I have to say, as being part of a large state university, a very exciting thing that we could do very rapidly is for people like Greg and me and you to coordinate better between our departments. Because, Nyana, I've known you for a lot of years, and I've not done that. I've not reached out. I'm a five-hour drive from you. I've never driven down to meet your lab or to go out for lunch, and I'm simultaneously embarrassed that I haven't done that while also being excited that there's no reason I couldn't do that. Definitely. Now that we're all online through Zoom, you can easily pop into my Stats 2 class to talk to the students about opportunities at Chapel Hill or University of Maryland, for example. And I was actually thinking about contacting you to do that this semester. (laughs) So now I have it on record. (laughs) It's a wonderful idea, though. It really is. It was always that easy, but now that online learning and collaboration are necessities, it's all just right here in the front of our minds. It's so much more obvious. Those are absolutely the kinds of things we should be doing routinely. So I love that. It's great. It is an exciting time. It is. It's a stressful time. And it's an uncomfortable time, but it really, truly is an exciting time. Yes. So turning to a related topic, I've spent the last several years working closely with the undergrad admissions office here at Carolina in trying to continue to foster and support a broadly diverse incoming class that comes into Carolina in their first year undergrad. And one thing I've noticed over the last few years is a change in the tone of the conversation that has moved from diversity being solely an issue of equity. That's a critical part, but it's not just any longer we need X percent of this and Y percent of that, but that the conversation seems to have expanded to having a diverse academic institution improves the learning experience for everyone who's involved. And so now, at least from my perspective, I've seen this development of the academic benefits of a diverse student body and faculty. Are you seeing that same kind of change from your perspective? That's an excellent question. And I would say that I'm not seeing a change from my perspective 
because my perspective has always been that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> okay, it's totally fair. <laughs> And, and this is, um, but it's very important to acknowledge that there is a change that others are seeing because that's what we need to be happening. Black people and people of color have been saying this for a long time. When we have a more diverse institution, we're all made better. Our science is made better, richer, stronger. We can answer more questions and so on. And to the extent that more people at the table are talking about making these changes, we will be more likely to actually see these changes taking place. It's kind of sad that it's taken us this long to get to this point, but I'm really hopeful that now that we are at this point, we can finally get over this hurdle that has been an obstacle for too many years. So, Greg, you and I have both been in this field a very long time. I have been chairs of search committees. I've been in personnel committee meetings. I've been in faculty committee meetings. And a very common theme when issues of diversity come up is people say, we would love to build a more diverse class, but we don't have diversity in the applicant pool. And so a very common term you sometimes hear is, I can't admit who didn't apply. And often there's a shrug as if, eh, what can I do? It's above my pay grade. I, I can't get people to apply. And it seems to end there. The discussion ends there and the efforts end there. But Nayana, you have dedicated a huge part of your professional career to addressing this very issue. So I was wondering if you could take a few minutes to tell us about your NSF grant that supports your outreach effort to undergraduate, underrepresented minorities to draw them into the quantitative sciences. For years, I've been working to get funding to support training undergraduates. And so the NSF award was to start for this summer but it had to be postponed until we'll start next summer. The goal is to train undergraduates in statistics. And this grant is interdisciplinary. And the key part of the training is to target undergraduates who've just finished their first year. So to start them off earlier before they declare a major so that they have opportunities in undergrad to take more of the quantitative classes and to potentially declare a major that's more quantitative than they had maybe initially thought mm -hmm. when they first got to college. That's the goal of the um, NSF Inspire U2 program. So just like you saw the website for USC's program and you said, hey, Math, psychology, it's me. What, what kinds of things are you doing to help draw people in and make them attracted to this as a field? On the grant with me, other investigators are Lisa Durker, who is a professor of psychology at Wesleyan University, mm -hmm. and Lisa Harlow, who mm -hmm. is a professor at University of Rhode Island. And Lisa Durker has a great training that she's been doing for years as well 
where it's called the passion-driven statistics, and it's mainly introducing students to statistics, project-driven approach. Students can do the statistics even before they take an introductory statistics class. They don't have have to have any background. And so I use that approach in training students is to provide them with information on an as-needed basis. So we don't have to necessarily tell students everything like and Mm. theoretical Mm -hmm. and here's all the numbers and make sure you understand this equation allowing students to get their hands on data and analyzing it coming up with their own research questions and then introducing them to the types of analyses that are relevant for those research questions is also a method of training students and i think such a method can increase students interest in data and analyses and so those are the types of techniques that I use in reaching students and getting them more interested and engaged in your opinion what are the key barriers that are keeping a more diverse student body out of entering the quantitative sciences part of it is that sometimes students have a fear of math statistics, but it's sometimes unfounded. They're really smart about these things, but they haven't given them the, themselves a chance because they say, oh, I can't do math. But when they try and they learn about statistics and analyzing the data, they see that, oh, it's not really that hard. Sometimes there might be lack of awareness in the field about quantitative programs and what individuals can do with in quantitative careers. And so increasing awareness about quant sciences more broadly can help to produce a more diverse student body. I don't know how many introductory textbooks talk about quantitative fields, or I don't know how mm-hmm. in introductory classes, the intro psych instructors are talking about things that students can do in quantitative sciences, or even if there are career classes that students take, mm-hmm. how many of those career classes are infusing information about quantitative sciences. They're earlier on, we're able to do these things to talk more about the careers in quantitative sciences. The more we're able to catch students before they declare a major, they come in with these ideas, oh, I want to do this. But maybe if they knew what else is available and what else is out there, then they might think more broadly about what they can do. When we're able to show students that when you understand data for yourself, it does have an impact on your own self, that can perhaps pique their interest as well. So there are particular examples or contexts or ways that we can make the content that we're doing especially interesting to a broader diversity of students. I I worry that sometimes I'm just not doing the things that I need to be doing to make people feel a sense of ownership over this kind of material. Sometimes it's okay to ask students what they're interested Mm -hmm. in. You might do that before the semester starts. If you know your list of students, you can contact them, find out what they're interested in, and maybe tailor the examples that are used and to some of their interests. Additionally, allowing students to pick their own research topics can help them to be more engaged and interested in it so that they have more of an ownership of what it is that they're working on Mm -hmm. and helping students to see the importance of their work. 
Mental note, don't use same examples I have used since 1986. <laughs> okay, good. Good. I've written that down. Thank you. <laughs> Nyana, what I struggle with is the field right now in terms of people at our levels of being full professors in these programs, we are not a diverse group. What I struggle with is how do you draw a more diverse student body in when these 18-year-olds don't see people in the field who look like them or who are interested in the things that they are interested in. Now, you're at an HBCU, so you're embedded in this amazing tradition of outreach to underrepresented minorities, but what should people like Greg and me be thinking about as we're trying to broaden the tent to bring in a more diverse student body into our field? That's a, um, I keep saying that's a great question. <laughs> Don't worry, as the episode goes, you'll quit saying that all the time. It's like, well, because <laughs> they're not all great questions. Yeah, as my teenage daughter would say, well, that's a question. Mm-hmm. So. In terms of full professors, there is an underrepresentation in academia in general. There are not that many, I think it's about 3% of Black full professors. And so we know that when students see people like them, it gives them an example of things that they can aspire to. That's based from like Bandura's research and so on. When we have more diverse individuals, at least the more diverse research questions, the analyses and the work that we do is more diverse. We can answer different types of research questions. Students in the classroom might not see people like them, but it doesn't mean that we can't reach them. If we have certain training programs that students can go to, certain things that even at a college-wide level, sometimes when students come in, they can test out of math. College might have a math requirement, but students can test out of it. By testing out, that might be a place where students are lost because some students might not think to take those classes because, oh, I tested out, I don't have to take it. If they did take the course, they might see that, oh, they are strong in this, this might be a path to take. So some of the changes that might need to be made are even bigger than just our levels. They are at institution-wide changes of introducing students to math. Even if they are at a high level when they start undergrad, they should still take something Mm -hmm. in that area. And this connects probably to this new thing out there called data science. Whoa. Now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did not see that coming. Uh-oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. But Patrick will not be able to contain himself for very long. I'm just warning you. I, I have an opinion or two on this. Easy. I'm going I'm to mute him. Let me mute Patrick for right now. Okay. So as do I, but with um, data science, you know, what what is data science? Now a lot of institutions are interested in this. And so this might be a way to get students more interested in the field is having students take data science classes. Mm-hmm. In that way, students might not be testing out of things. They will still be exposed to data fields. And connecting back to what I um, had mentioned before about allowing students to actually get into the data, working with the data, analyzing it, can pique students' interests, sometimes more so than throwing numbers and equations at them. Mm -hmm. 
we can still do that, but you know, <laughs> we can still do yeah. that, but they don't have to know that we're going to do. Right. So for starters, before I unmute Patrick, you think that there's potential around a more modern branding of what it is we do, making it more attractive to people rather than just sort of playing the same old theme. Oh, I think so. And I've seen it happen over the years in trying to get students more interested. Now with data science, everybody's jumping on that bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Why can't we? I think that that might be one way to go um, because quantitative methodologists, quantitative psychologists have been doing data science for years. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way that we can teach students, let them know this is what we do. This is what we're about. This is what we've been about. I actually find that argument compelling in the sense that I do believe that data science is sort of a different bow wrapped around something that we've been doing for a very long time. And yet that might be a very good reason to put that bow on it, to help be able to attract a lot more people into the field. Let me press the button that unmutes Patrick. I don't know what's going to come out of him. I just need to warn you, but he has a couple of feelings about data science. Here we go. And we've been doing data science for 120 okay, hang on. Let me, years. Let me mute him. Okay, and are you let's prepared? start with big data. My opinion. <laughs> there are certain tips that his wife has shared with me, and you just got to let it out and ride it out a little bit. Okay, here we go. Unmute, go. And that's what I think about the matter. Okay, that wasn't so bad. So thank you for letting me vent that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Nayana, I'm really intrigued about what you're saying because I see a dual issue. One is just broadening our draw into the field in general. So you're absolutely right is the data science is the flavor of the month. I think all of us would agree we've been doing this for a very long time. And I have one or two opinions about big data and how we've been doing that a very long time. Easy. And machine learning. Easy. Machine learning is supervised. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. One, two, three, four, five. Good. We've We've been working on this for a while. That was very good, Patrick. How do we use this as a mechanism, not just to expand to outreach to young people in general, but also maintaining our sensitivity to diversity? and to reaching promising students who we haven't been able to reach out to before. You made a comment about their training opportunities for students, and that's one of the things I'm most excited about with your Inspire program, Mm -hmm. is you get these kids into the trenches doing research in people's labs. And so it's not Greg and I going with our Fozzie Bear kind of how exciting this is, is you get real data and then you start to see the value in that. And so I appreciate the student training, but I want to do faculty training. Greg, this might be in, I don't know, what is this? We're in low 30s in episodes. The first time we've quoted Donald Rumsfeld. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to say for the record, it's the last time we will quote Mm -hmm. Donald Rumsfeld. But he was mocked for when he said, well, there are known knowns and there are known unknowns, but what keeps him awake at night are the unknown unknowns. I think he was spot on about the unknown unknowns. How do full professors that are 97% 
not reflecting underrepresented scholars in this field, how are we made aware of these unknown unknowns so that even though me as a 55-year-old white man from a square state can stand in front of a room and still try to reach a more diverse audience than I think I've been able to up to this point? I think that part of it is the institutional culture too. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. we might bring people in, but they're not able to stay because of some of the things happening in the institution. And now with the things happening in the nation, Perhaps we'll see a shift in some of the things that are happening in colleges and universities that hinder some folks from staying. So we might have faculty come, but they don't stay, or they're not able to get tenure at some institutions. And so those are really important things to tackle because we can't just talk about diversity. We have to really be focused on ways to maintain diversity, right? It's not enough have to just bring people in if they're not staying. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about what in our culture, in your professional opinion and personal opinion, do we need to change to help scaffold and retain a more diverse faculty that not only stay at a department, but flourish in a department? Yes. Some things that can assist include things like mentoring. How often are we mentoring those new folks when they come in, are we reaching out to them, providing them with support for them to engage in research and teaching? And are we providing them the necessary supports to actually flourish? Mm -hmm. When Black folks come to an institution, are they doing a lot of mentoring of students but not getting credit for it? The mentoring of students is really important. And sometimes the work that they're doing is important, but maybe they're not getting the credit for that time and effort that they're putting in. So those are things that are important as well. We need to think more about the broad academia in general. And what are, as you mentioned, the barriers. Sometimes we have to actually say what those barriers are, acknowledge that those barriers exist. Sometimes there's no acknowledgement that those barriers exist. And if they're not acknowledged, then how do we overcome them? So we have to acknowledge some of those barriers if folks are not getting the opportunities that they need and they're not able to achieve tenure and they go somewhere else, they're not there. We're not building that diverse faculty that we talk about. It sounds also like there's a bit of reckoning that needs to be done because one of the things that you said resonated with me, you said that faculty might be doing a lot of mentoring and not getting credit for that. And what that says to me is that there might be mismatches in value systems, mismatches in terms of what kinds of things are perceived as important, and some things that are really critical to be able to enhance the diversity and and retain high-quality faculty. It might be the case that some folks who entered academia under older systems really are not thinking more broadly about what the institution is about. Yeah, and how to advance the institution as well. 
well. I tend to have very traditional blinders on as I think about what counts, what are we doing, what matters, and all of that. I think I might be an impediment to the conversation because I have thought the way I have thought for a very long time. And sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes that's not such a good thing. And I might not be seeing some things that are beneficial to academia more broadly. So I think I need to be educated absolutely uh, along the way. And thank you for acknowledging that, Greg, because that's one of the things that's really important is for us to be more aware of some of the things that we can do to foster that growth that we talk about. A word that Patrick and I, I think, resonate to, broadly speaking anyway, is the word mentoring and the idea of providing mentorship to our students and to other faculty. One thing I wanted to explore with you Have you found success in having more advanced students serve as mentors and role models for younger students? It seems like there might be able to be something very useful there. Where there aren't faculty role models, there still might be more senior student role models. I think when peers mentoring each other, so when someone junior might see their senior peer doing something, that can encourage the more junior peer to also be interested in that. So I've had some of my former students, if they take a psychometrics class or statistics class with me, then they make themselves available to their peers for, I've had students, they will um, like hold office, their own office hours and the peers can come and talk to them. And sometimes it's amazing. We professors might say something, but the peer says the same thing. And it's just um, (laughs) easier to hear. I mean, it's just like with parenting, right? Your parent might tell you something Mm -hmm. and you just don't listen to that. But your friend or a sibling tells Mm -hmm. you and it's like, oh, that really makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) That peer tutoring and peer mentoring, I think is really important. And also, we can't forget our alumni. If we have alumni who graduate and they go into these quant programs, have them come back and talk to their their Spelman sisters. <laughs> they come back and talk to their Spelman, their Spelman sisters and tell them, give them tips or advice about, I guess, the world out there and talk about the career. So I've had um, some students who go in, they, if they, they might not go directly into like a PhD program in quant sciences, but they're still quantitative literate and they are still doing quantitative things in whatever field or programs they've selected. And they can come back and talk to their peers about how to apply to programs. What I wish I had known when I was at Spelman, for example. And Mm. so they come back and tell their peers these things. And that can be Mm. very helpful to the current students when they hear, okay, these are the things that I should be doing. These are things I should be doing in my sophomore year. These are the things that I should be doing in my junior year. When they come back and share their experiences, that can also help students to become more comfortable with the um, experiences that they're having and the decisions that they're making about pursuing quantitative. I think a lot of us feel like we've been working to enhance diversity. Nyana, we go way back as you came to Chapel Hill as part of a one-day conference on enhancing diversity in the quantitative sciences. And so in some way, I feel like, no, we were working really hard on these. But then unambiguously, business as usual is not being effective. It's not inducing the change that needs to be made. And just a week ago, our graduate students in our own program here at Carolina wrote an open letter to the department in raising some very uncomfortable issues. 
And they said in the letter they hope this makes us uncomfortable because it's addressing these long-neglected topics. Do you view the current situation that we're in as maybe a shock to the system that allows us to try something differently than we've tried before? Yeah, I think I'm excited about the things that are happening now, but I'm also cautiously optimistic about the changes that are happening. And so time will tell. We see a lot of folks educating themselves more on issues. And that's really important because to educate yourself on the issues can help to open eyes and to lead to changes. Time will tell the extent to which certain things are really put in place or if it's just talk in the moment. Patrick, you mentioned we go way back. We've been trying to do this for a long time. And so I appreciate this having this conversation with individuals like you because there are things that you've been thinking about for a long time. Folks like you can talk with people who are newly educated Mm -hmm. about issues and to bring them more on board and the more people who are able to be aware of these issues. And, you know, that open letter that your department received, it might have been a shock. But is it a shock where folks turn their blinders back on? Or is it a shock where folks really listen and hear what the students have had to say? To the extent that folks hear what was said, then systems can be put in place to work on those challenges that the students expressed. But if the blinders go on and the reaction is, oh, things are not that way, then, of course, things won't change. It's all unfolding in real time with the letter and the department reaction. But I have been deeply impressed both with the students who were willing to Mm -hmm. put themselves out there and share these concerns with the department as a whole, but also with the department response as we've had an all hands on deck responding to the issues and talking about, are we going to rethink how we do graduate admissions and opting out of even getting the GRE as a reported score. And it's actually moving to where we're not going to consider the GRE in graduate applications. I think I'm with you as I share the cautious optimism as we'll see, right? Academia is like a giant tanker at sea. Mm-hmm. It takes a hundred miles to turn these things in any meaningful way. Time mm-hmm. will tell, but I'll be frank, Nyana, is I appreciate all the nice things you said about our work together. To be completely honest, I feel like I've had more failures in those endeavors than I've had successes. And so you made the comment that something, I'm paraphrasing, but you appreciate that I've given thought to these things. Well, thought is useless. I can sit on my back deck and think anything I want, but if it doesn't make a meaningful, observable change, then what's the point? But trying is a start. Just listening to some of the experiences that students have had. I don't know if you're on Twitter or the um, Black in the Ivory Tower hashtag that was trending where individuals were sharing their experiences. And these are experiences that they feel comfortable sharing because there are some experiences that they might still not feel comfortable sharing. But to the extent Mm -hmm. that those have been shared and people are really listening and taking it in and seeing what the culture has been like can help to shift things. It will be a process. It's not going to be overnight. But when we're able to 
make those changes. I think then we'll see folks not just coming into departments and programs and that whether it's faculty or undergraduates or graduate students, we'll see folks not just coming in, but thriving and flourishing in those programs. And that's the way in which we can increase diversity in the field is putting into place systems that will allow people to actually thrive. If you were the chair of Patrick's program, or you were the chair of my program, what kinds of things would you be doing? Are there things that you would say, here are eight things that you should be thinking about doing? I think the fact that you're even asking that question is important. And taking a look at your student body and evaluating who's coming into the programs, if they're staying in the programs, if they're leaving the programs, they stay in the program, how long does it take for them to get out? What is the source of funding like for students? Even thinking about cost of living, maybe they have a research assistantship and a teaching assistantship and trying to also do the graduate work, but other students just have one assistantship. What is their load like? And then even things like the mentoring that the students are receiving, maybe checking in with them. Sometimes students Mm -hmm. might not feel comfortable coming and saying that the mentor relationship isn't going so well, but that might be the reason why it's taken some folks longer to finish a program than others. So opening the door and letting students come in, be comfortable talking about that mentor-mentee relationship. Those are some of the things that I can think of in assessing programs and how to ultimately make them more effective, more inclusive. One thing that I have heard a number of faculty of color mention is that they simultaneously feel a responsibility to be someone that students can come to and connect with, but they also feel the burden of being put on every committee under the sun and really having to be one of very few representatives of color on many university administrative tasks and interfacing with students. And as someone who wants faculty to thrive, I don't know how to navigate that. And some of that goes back to my comment about when faculty are taking on these multiple roles, how is it viewed? Because some of those roles can take away time from other things that are supposed to be leading folks to tenure, for example. So faculty are spending a lot of time mentoring or being on this advisory committee or being on that advisory committee. They might not have the time to engage in the research that they are also really passionate about, but they can't do all of those things. If we are not rewarding or incentivizing faculty for engaging in some mentoring or being on some committees, then that can be challenging because then ultimately that faculty member might not earn tenure. They might not stay around. But so then it's this cycle that academia is going through. So we bring in folks and they are not um, rewarded for the things that they are actually doing that are part of academic success, right? But then they don't get tenure, then they go somewhere else. Then the department brings in somebody new and it's the same thing that happens again. And this is more of an institutional wide conversations to be had is if folks are spending a lot of time mentoring, we need to think about that and think about that as part of something that is adding significantly to 
the institution. And the research is also important and the teaching is also important. But that mm -hmm. service piece, some people are carrying that load and it's a heavy load to carry. Yeah, absolutely. So it comes down to continuing to have these tough conversations about what we value as an institution and rewarding those kinds of things along the way, which I think we've probably been very poor at, at handling. Nyana, I totally share your cautious optimism because a lot of people are on deck right now helping out and talking about changes, and we'll see where we are in five years. We all have to be committed to following this through, and maybe this comes back kind of squaring the circle on how we open the discussion is part of it is moving this massive oil tanker at sea, but part of it is reaching out to these 18-year-old, curious, mm -hmm. passionate, smart future generation of quantitative scientists and convincing them that this is an important, fun endeavor where their voice is welcomed and their perspective is respected. So it just goes back to your Inspire work of working with these undergrads at your institution. And to me, that's where I see the excitement of the future is we can have the conversations at the level of the full professors, and those are critical. I'm not undermining those at all. But we're all going to be working in the field in five years, and we're going to be working in the field in 10 years, and what can we be doing now so that we're building that pipeline of a diverse incoming student body who will be the future leaders of our field in 20 years? They'll be the full professors. This is an exciting time to have folks at both ends of the spectrum, the potential institutional shifts, but getting those young people really excited. And I've seen students, I'm working with some this summer on different projects and getting them really excited about data and the quantitative sciences and talking to them about where they might go and the things that they might do in the future is just a really exciting time. So I'll be frank, Nyana, this has been an absolutely wonderful discussion, but a concern I have as I sit here right now is that Greg and I are just another couple of white guys who found found a black person and we want them to tell us what we should do. But it is not your responsibility to do that and it is patently unfair to put you in that position. But at the same time, you're one of the leading voices in the country in these issues who can help us continue to learn and evolve. So are we just two white guys who found a black woman to tell us what to do? Or is this some kind of productive way to try to move forward? Oh, yes. You are two white guys asking a black woman what to do. <laughs> but it's different. And let me tell you why. We are living in different times right now. And because of the current times, we're seeing more and more that white people are asking black people and people of color what to do. And White people want to become educated. They see Black people as a resource. I've seen and heard Black people and people of color telling each other not to respond to these requests. And I can understand that. It's exhausting because there's so many resources out there, such as books, especially in academia. We're, we're used to reading books and articles, right? So we can refer to them. They're good books, very informative books and articles written by Black people and people of color. And so those resources should be consulted rather than burdening folks with yet another task. And in academia, it's another service task 
that won't even be rewarded if we think about it honestly. It's also important to understand that some white people are asking these questions and they haven't even worked on themselves first. If somebody hasn't done a self-assessment to understand their own biases, then anything that we say might be met with resistance or with defensiveness, such as, no, things are definitely not that way. And that's what's been going on for years. There's been a lot of resistance. If Black people say, this is happening, then somebody else will say, no, that's not really happening. And things stay the same. Somebody approaching a Black person to ask for help and they're not prepared to hear what they will hear, it'll be like speaking to a wall. And so before asking Black people or others what to do, the individuals should be prepared to listen and be prepared to act. And so that's why I agreed and was excited to talk with you both because I know from working with you before in the past that you are prepared to listen. And you are prepared to act. And there are some things that you might hear that are shocking or they are enlightening, but you are prepared to hear that and to be enlightened. And that's different from others who haven't worked on themselves. I think that it's important for everyone to really do those self-assessments before asking somebody for help. And right now, Black people are getting emails and Twitter, direct messages, asking questions, and people haven't even taken the time to find out background information about the person they're talking to, the person they're making that request from. It's almost like a slap in the face. Like, you're asking me for help, but you don't even know who I am. You get my name wrong, for example. And those are things that they demonstrate that that person is not yet even ready to hear what it is that I would have to say. I've worked with you guys in the past, and my hope for this conversation is that through you both, others will also be preparing themselves to listen and to make the changes because we will all be better for it. I really appreciate that answer because sometimes it's hard to recognize yourself as part of the problem. And sometimes you think that just asking the question is enough. You have to be willing to, as you said, to do a self-assessment, to view yourself as a work in progress to be a different person in a year than you are now and then the year after that and just continue your education. So I'm just really grateful that you helped me look at myself and maybe help Patrick and me be part of some change. Yes. I echo that and I really appreciate your responses. That means a lot to me. I think when I've even over the last seven days given some thought to what's unfolding in my own department, I think as a group, faculty on an individual basis view themselves as being on the right side of history. I don't think any of my colleagues feel like they're not sensitive to these issues or they're not aware of diversity or it's not a priority. And I think part of the shock of the last couple of weeks is we are part of the problem. We are part of the institution. And there's the individual embedded within the group. And at the end of the day, we are not having the successes that we want to have. I just feel like as a prototypical white faculty member, a male, a director of a program, a leader in the university, it's very hard for me to think that I am part of the problem, but I am because I'm part of this institution that has codified a lot of these issues over hundreds of years. That's right. And acknowledging that what the problem is and that 
you're part of the problem is that step two solutions. Sometimes we get into our bubbles. Some professors, they have, it's not a bad gig for some people. And you get into your bubble, you're comfortable, and you don't want to rock that boat. But so many other people are not comfortable. So it's thinking about what can you do to fix things, not what can Black people do to fix things. So, Niana, just as we're, I think, starting to circle around an ending point, at least for this first of many conversations, right? That's another thing I'm excited about is now it's not like, okay, did an episode on diversity. We can check that off. I believe we have an opportunity to change things in a way that we haven't done in the past. And I see this Mm -hmm. as an opening conversation about how we move forward from here. But as we're wrapping up this first chapter, in that conversation. Do you have any final thoughts or parting words in terms of where you see us going next? Oh, I would just say to folks who are listening to encourage your students to seek out these quantitative programs. Talk to them about that. Psychology is more than just the clinical counseling. And even if students are interested in that, it doesn't mean they can't be strong quantitatively. And I think that's important as well. So encourage our students and encourage our students to pursue these different opportunities that might be out there available for them. And I am available. You know, you want to let your students contact me. I am more than willing to talk with them more about my experiences. Definitely would be happy Thank to you. do that. I got to tell you, Niana, that was right in with the cold arms, sleeper cells, rise up against the machine. So, mm-hmm. Greg, this is spot on. It is. And I'm going to tweet her cell phone number out so that people can contact. <laughs> well, Niana, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Yeah. And I share Greg's comment as we're so deeply appreciative of the work that you're doing. And thank you for that. Thanks you for the invitation. I should say this has most definitely not been NPR. <laughs> <laughs>